The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Backstory. Saka wants to ask some questions of the Buddha. So he sees the Buddha staying in a cave someplace, and so he sends one of his musicians to get the Buddha in the right mood to talk to Davis. <laughs> so the musician, being a Gandharva, and you've got to know about the Gandharvas, they're kind of like the teenagers of the Deva world. They like sex, and they like fast cars, and they like music, and they like playing tricks on people. Okay? So the musician is a Gandharva, and he goes and he sings a song to the Buddha about, I love you, I love your thighs as much as the Arhans love the Dharma. <laughs> and the Buddha says, it's a nice song, okay? Uh, <laughs> when did you compose this song? He said, well, it was that night when you were gaining your awakening and all the other devas were watching and I snuck off with my lady friend, okay? Uh, so that's the, <laughs> that's the scene. <laughs> then Saka feels that, deva, that the Buddha is in the right mood to talk to devas and so he comes and asks this question. He says, fettered with what, dear sir, though they think, may we live free from hostility, free from violence, free from rivalry, free from ill will, free from those who are hostile, to devas, human beings, asuras, nagas, gandharvas, and whatever other kinds of beings there are, nevertheless live in hostility, violence, rivalry, ill will with those who are hostile. In other words, he's asking, why is there conflict? And again, a more backstory on Saka. There was a fight between the devas and the asuras for dominance in heaven. And after lots and lots of battles, the, the devas finally won. So that you can imagine, this has been much on his mind. Why do we still have conflict even in heaven? And the Buddha goes down this long list. First, they're fettered with envy and stinginess. And why they have envy, envy, envy and stinginess? He says, there are things that are dear and not dear. In other words, there are things that you really love and things that you hate. Okay. That's what gives rise to stinginess. Okay, why do we have those that we love or things that we love and not love? It's because we have desire. Where does this desire come from? I'm taking you down pretty quickly here to the italicized words. Desire has thinking as its cause. And where does thinking come from? Thinking comes from the perceptions and categories of babancha, or objectification. Okay, so that's as far as he traces it. So it's the fact that we have conflict comes down to these perceptions and categories of objectification. So the, remember, the main issue here is the type of perception and the type of category. It's not the amount of thinking, and it's not how fast the thinking is coming at you, it's the terms in which you are trying to think. That's what gives rise to thinking, desire, dear and not dear, and finally envy and stinginess, and then all that conflict. Okay, then he goes on to ask, how do you practice so that you can lead to the cessation of those kinds of perceptions? And the Buddha says, joy, grief, and equanimity. There are two types of each. The type that is to be pursued and not to be pursued. And he starts with joy. When you know of a feeling of joy, as I pursue this joy, unskillful mental qualities increase and skillful mental qualities decline. That sort of joy is not to be pursued. When one knows feeling of joy, as I pursue this joy, unskillful mental qualities decline and skillful mental qualities increase. That sort of joy is to be pursued. And this sort of joy may be accompanied by directed thought and evaluation, or free of a directed thought and evaluation. Of the two, the latter is the more refined. Basically right there he's talking about getting the mind in a state of concentration. And there's a joy that comes with the first jhana, when you're dealing with directed thought and evaluation, and then when you drop that kind of thinking 
and go into the second jhana, that's how you get beyond it. So this is how you get rid of that thinking that would, that would be in terms of babancha. Okay, once you are in the second jhana, that kind of thinking has stopped. Then he goes on to talk about the simile with grief and equanimity. Now the question is, why would grief come in the practice of concentration? There's, another, there's a passage in Majjhima 137 where the Buddha talks about how sometimes grief is a skillful emotion. When you stop and think, there is so much more to be done in the practice and I haven't done it yet. And there's a feeling of grief. The Buddha says, cultivate that. He doesn't say, go home and stop thinking. He says, when you cultivate that, then what do you do? What's the skillful response? The skillful response is, I've got to get my act together. Let's sit down and meditate. So you learn how to use that sense of grief as a motivation for the practice. And then similarly with equanimity. So basically he's saying you're going, to, you're going to have to get your mind at the very least into a good state of concentration before you can get beyond the babancha. Any questions about that passage? There is Domanasa. Domanasa, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to skip over to passage three and four. Passage three. This is a question that we don't know who posed the question to the Buddha, it's, but it is posed to the Buddha here. For one arriving at what does form disappear? How do pleasure and pain disappear? Tell me this. My heart is set on knowing how they disappear. The Buddha's answer, and it's, this is one of those very Indian answers. Um, and it says, the Mahandadesa says this refers to the formless jhanas. Um, basically, one not percipient of perceptions not percipient of special perceptions, not unpercipient, nor percipient of what's disappeared. You say, what the hell? Um, <laughs> and so, except that he's talking about the state of neither perception or non-perception, okay? For one arriving at this, form disappears. There is no sense of body or physical form in that state of concentration at all. Um, and then, he's, then he adds, for objectification classifications, in other words, those classifications of objectification have their cause in perception. So it's the labels that you place on things that are going to cause these kinds of perceptions and categories. Okay. And then next is passage four. This is the one that we're identified, where the Buddha identifies where the start of all this is. I asked the kinsman of the sun, the great seer, about seclusion and the state of peace. Seeing in what way is a monk unbound, clinging to nothing in the world. And the Buddha starts out by saying he should put an entire stop to the root of objectification classifications. I am the thinker. Okay, this is the passage where we see where these classifications come from. Then, having done that, you should train, always mindful, to subdue any craving inside. Whatever truth you may know within or without, you shouldn't get entrenched in connection with it, for that isn't call, called unbinding by the good. In other words, you have to learn how not to feed off even the realizations you come, from, come to. You shouldn't, because of it, think yourself better, lower, or equal. 
Touched by contact in various ways, you shouldn't keep conjuring self. Stilled right within, a monk shouldn't, peace from, couldn't, shouldn't seek peace from another or from anything else. For one stilled right within, there's nothing embraced, so how rejected? Okay, you get to this point where you're not latching on to the classifications that would make you take sides on any of those issues. As in the middle of the sea, it is still with no waves upswelling, upwelling, excuse me. So the monk, unperturbed still, should not swell himself anywhere. So basically saying, don't get into that type of thinking that starts with, well, I'm the thinker, and from that thinking I have these opinions and, and all the conflict that's going to come from that. So th this is the passage where it points out the particular perception from which um, babancha or objectification comes from. Any questions on any of those? Yes? So just a word question. Mm -hmm. In this section, these two sections where it says objectification classifications, is mm -hmm. that a translation of papancha or is that papancha something else? Papancha sankha is called. Sankha? Yes, S-A-N with a dot over it and then K-H-A. Sankha. And it means classification. Okay, we've got the big one now. Go back to passage two. Now, you remember from the first passage we saw where the Buddha is talking about how thinking comes from the classifications and perceptions of babancha or objectification. In this, in this sutta, this, the order is switched a little bit. In other words, there is thinking. Thinking comes before the classifications. So the question is, okay, which one is it? Which comes first? And let's go through this a little bit and show that it's not that big a problem as it might seem. Again, here's the backstory. Um, this Brahmin comes up to the Buddha, and the Brahmin's looking for a fight. And he says, what kind of doctrine do you teach? And this Brahmin is known to be a debater. And the Buddha says, the kind of doctrine whereby, whereby I do not get involved with useless discussions with people who want to debate. <laughs> that stymies the Brahmin. Okay. And he, what is it? He... He lifts his eyebrows so there are three furrows in his brow, and he waggles his head, waggles his tongue, and goes. <laughs> and then the Buddha turns to the monks and says this, If with regard to the cause whereby the perceptions and categories of objectification assail a person, there is nothing there to relish, welcome, or remain fastened to, then that is the end of the obsessions of passion, the obsessions of resistance, the obsessions of views, the obsessions of uncertainty, the obsessions of conceit, the obsessions of passion for becoming and the obsessions of ignorance. This list is called the seven obsessions. Okay? Okay. That is the end of taking up rods and bladed weapons, of arguments, quarrels, disputes, accusations, divisive tail-bearing, and false speech. That is where these evil, unskillful things cease without remainder. And then apparently, then, then the Buddha, after making that statement, got up and went into his hut. And the monk said, Okay. <laughs> so they go see Mahakajayana, because he's known for being able to explicate things. Okay, so again, here, here the, the context here is how do you avoid conflict? And, the, and his answer is, you learn how to develop dispassion for the causes of the perceptions and categories of optification. 
Okay, what are the causes of these things? And that's the question basically that Mahagajayan is going to ask, answer. And he starts out with a description of, of sensory consciousness. Dependent on eye and forms, eye consciousness arises. The meeting of the three is contact. With contact as a requisite condition, there is feeling. Can notice up to this point, the discussion is impersonal. Eye, forms, eye consciousness, contact, contact to feeling. Now the, now the form of the sentence changes. What one thinks about, excuse me, what one feels, one perceives. What one perceives, one thinks about. What one thinks about, one objectifies. All of a sudden you've got an agent appearing. There's an assumption that okay, I am the one who's feeling, I am the one who's perceiving, I am the one who's thinking. And this already has the root of that, you know, the classifications of objectification. It's already built into that way of looking at your, at your perception. Because there are other passages in the canon where the Buddha simply says, you have feeling and then you have perception and then you have thought. But here you're already beginning to read the I into there. And so once you're thinking in that way, you're going to be objectifying it. And then finally, based on what a person objectifies, the perceptions and categories of objectification assail him or her with regard to past, present, and future forms cognizable by the I. So at this point, from being the, the subject that's thinking and objectifying, then you become the victim. These concepts and categories start assailing you. You're the ones start beating you up with these concepts. So this basically means it's any of the six senses are the things that you've got to learn how to develop dispassion for. Vision, things that you see, contact, and the feelings that come about that from these things. So that essentially is his answer. In that sense, objectification is, is objectification of the view, the eye agent in the process of? Of looking and listening and smelling and all the rest. It starts right in a very sense, and, and just in sensory processes, when you start seeing that you, there's an agent here that's doing this, you've already got the classifications that are going to turn into objectification. And then the process itself is, is like a view, then. It's a, it becomes limited. Well, the way you're viewing the process is what's causing the problem. Anchoring it in the, in the eye. In Reading the eye or the agent into, th into this, yeah. Just over here. Um, uh, objectification is, is um, related, I think, in Western philosophy to the notion of reification. Mm -hmm. And reification is often defined as the taking of something uh, as real, which is not real. Okay, there's, um, and, and there's two so ways of defining reification. The other one is turning a process into an object. So in this sense of objectification, um, how should one understand it? It's turning a process into an object. You've got the processes going on here that are, it's an impersonal process. And you're turning, and you're, you're beginning to assume that there's an agent behind the process or there's an object that's the process is happening too. So, how is this related to categorization, classification? Okay, once you once you've got that category, then other categories are going to come from it. 
We're not just talking about any, just any classification or any categorization. Once you've got the concept that there's the I in here that is also acting out there, then, there, then you start building other categories around that. Does this I really exist? Does that I really exist? The me out there. Does the world around me really exist? Then you start thinking about the world. You think about what's edible and what's not edible. In a certain sense, the original sin here is the objectification of self, right. and from that, everything proliferates. Everything proliferates from there. Thank you. Yeah. So, Mahaka has was singled out by the Buddha as his student, who was the best at making a long explanation of something that's really short. So, <laughs> well, it's sort of teasing out the implications, and that's an important thing. I'll say, let's try to move it the other direction, okay? Basically, he's saying the things that are causing this, these classifications are the fact that you have relish for the six senses, the objects of the senses, and the feeling that comes about fr from those processes. And so you have to learn how to develop dispassion for them. That's how you avoid conflict. So this means that we're not going to have, avoid conflict by having United Nations peacekeeping troops. It's something everybody has to work out for from within, because otherwise, as soon as you have this sense of, I am the thinker, I am, I am the doer out there, I am the agent working out there in the world, then you start staking out, staking out your territory, you've got your field of food that you need, field of nourishment you need, and that's going to lead to conflict. So you have to turn inside and look at where does this sense of the I come from. And it starts in really basically just on the simple level of you know, sensory processes. You start reading the I am the one who is feeling this, I am the one who is thinking this, and you've got the potential for conflict right there. Okay, just a few more. This is, this is just kind of illustrating some of the points I made this morning. Passage number five. Here's from that catechism I was talking about. What is one all beings subsist on nutriment? Okay, once you have this sense of a being, you've got to feed it. And you stop to think about, you know, the process of feeding is, it's hard for both sides. I mean, the things they're being fed on obviously don't like it. <laughs> what was that tennis player, Martina Navratilovna? She had that comment about, in a, in a plate of ham and eggs, the, the chicken was involved, but the pig was committed. <laughs> <laughs> The pig does not enjoy being fed on. Uh -huh. Of course, this feeding here, as I said earlier, is not just physical feeding, but it's also emotional and mental feeding. Um, a lot of relationships, as, as long as both sides feel that they're getting well fed from the relationship, they're willing to have the other person feed off them. And you notice a sense of violation when suddenly you decide that you know, the other person is doing all the feeding and I'm doing all the being fed on. Um, how quickly that can change, change the, t the tenor of the relationship. So as long as there's mutual agreement that the feeding is okay, a relationship can, can survive. When it's getting oppressive to one side or the other, it's not going to last. We're talking on, on, on Monday how you know, children feed off their parents, and parents feed off their children. It happens both ways.
So this creates, you know, it being fed on is not pleasant, but also, also, also the need to feed is also not a pleasant thing either. When you're really, really hungry, or even if you've managed to have a meal, there's always the question, where is the next meal coming from? And where's the next one after that? How long can I keep this up? One of the lessons you learn camping is that you know, the need to feed places severe limitations on you. Many times I've just wanted to wander off into Zion National Park and just disappear. Um, but then I'm, I'm kept back by the fact that I've got to feed. <laughs> I can only, the person I'm going with can carry only so much food. Um, so the fact that you need to feed is beginning to place limitations on you. This is one of the ways in which the Buddha said, as he said, once you've placed a definition on yourself, you are also limiting yourself. Passage 6 goes into the Buddha's definition of a being. What is a being? Any passion, any, excuse me, desire, passion, delight, or craving for form or any other fabrications. When one is caught up with that passion, delight, etc., you're tied there, you're said to be a being. Now this is a pun in the Pali. To be caught up with something is the same word as to be a being, satta. But he's making an important point. This is not just a pun. Turns out it, puns were really considered an honorable form of humor until the 18th century. <laughs> I was reading a book on the history of puns. And it turned out the 18th century, for some reason, suddenly decided that puns, they hated puns. Um, because that was the period when they wanted language to be scientific. And if you were having a, if you're having a discussion and somebody comes in with some smart-ass comment that's a pun, you, it destroys the scientific, you know, objectivity of what you're saying, and it calls into question, you know, whether language is, is a suitable way of you know, t talking about objective truths. And so puns were assigned to the dustbin. <laughs> but prior to that, it, the fact that you could play with words like this was considered a sign of, of original intelligence, that you could see connections between words that were not obvious. Okay. So here the Buddha is saying that it's your being caught up in the passion and desire for thee. This is what creates a being. A being is something that you make. Your sense of the being, the sense of who you are. Um, he wants you to see this, however, as a process. There's no thing out there or thing in here that you would identify as it. But you do create the process that takes on many of the characteristics of what we would identify with a being. And beings can, can take rebirth. You know? And this is what fuels the process, we'll be saying later on fuels the process for rebirth, is this need to be a being. You think of a, I was talking yesterday to someone saying it was the analogy is, you know, a, an animal whose prey is being fed on by a predator. You know, the prey should know that it's dead. I mean, that's, it doesn't have much left, but it keeps fighting. And that's, you know, that's the desire to be. That's the desire to keep on going. And the Buddha says that can actually keep, create another sense of being that will take rebirth out of that desire. Where does that uh, sense of craving and desire of being emanate from? That's one of those questions the Buddha doesn't answer. He says, look at it as a process. And basically it comes from ignorance of the Four Noble Truths, is what it comes from. There seems to be this biological urge to, if one was a lesser, a worm, an amoeba, or whatever, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's this... Um, 
if not desire to be of becoming and being just to survive and exist and procreate. Yeah, well, the, the, the amoeba has a certain amount of desire, and it's caught up on the desire. It's already creating a little being. Yes, over here. Can, I want to make sure I have this right, or a glimpse of it anyway. Are you saying that we take on the process of, that, that we create our, the I? Mm-hmm. So then we can we can uncreate it. Not do that. Yeah. If we are the instinct. Yeah. The thing is, the Buddha says, if you try to destroy the eye, uh-huh. that creates. Well, who's the destroyer? And then there's going to be the destroyer destroys the eye. Okay. And so, but he says, this is why you want to get out of that bind by looking at things as processes. And sort of, you know, the eye gets more and more and more in the background. It gets more and more uh-huh. attenuated until you see that the process is not worth feeding on. You know the, the grass or the or the oily rag, and then it's that distaste which puts an end to the process. That sense of I've eaten enough of this. I'm not going to eat this crap anymore. You know, I had enough, or enough. So it's not like we have. I mean, I, m- I remember talking to somebody who had a. Tibetan Buddhist background, and they, they were always bothered by the idea that you know there was the conventional self and there was the true self or the ultimate self um, issue. And the question is, when did I when did I get saddled with this self? You know, it's almost like it was imposed on you from outside. That's not the case. You've chosen this identity, how you identify yourself right now, through the things that you fasten on, through the things you obsess about willy-nilly, whether you were thinking about choosing an identity or not, the fact that there was the craving and there was the clinging, that creates a sense, you know, the, the core of a sense of I. And the Buddha wants you to look at that process. In other words, as I said earlier, it's not like he's trying to say, this is what a self would be if there was a self, but there is no self. <laughs> what he's saying is, look at how you're creating your sense of self right now, and see how that process is causing suffering, and how you may want to end this, you know, learn how to, you know, starve that process of fuel. Okay. And that's something to be learned. You've got to figure that out. Well, you, on the one hand, f- gladly, you not only have to learn it on your own, but there is some advice mm-hmm. on how to do it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. And just one more passage before we break for lunch. It's passage seven. I'm racing you through these because we've got some difficult stuff in the afternoon. If you stay obsessed with form, that's what you are measured and limited by. Whatever you are measured by, that's how you are classified. In other words, you are classifying yourself by the things that you obsess about. You are defining yourself through your obsessions. The word here, limited or measured, comes from the word bamana, um, and it has both meanings. Something you limit... Some, excuse me, something you measure is also something that you're placing limits on. And so by, by measuring yourself or creating a sense of exactly what you are, it also has the implication that you've limited yourself by that. And you can see this, you know, just in terms of like, you know, like, a, like a sense of identity that's being imposed on you from outside. 
there's that whole postmodern question is, can you ever escape society's labels for you? Is that all you are? Are you just their labels? And some of the, some of the postmodernists actually said that's all you are. Others say, wait, wait a minute, there's something in here that can rebel against that. And then the first side would say, well, the rebellion was caused by another, you know, whatever, and then you picked up from outside. But you do have the choice. This is what the Buddha is saying. You do have the choice in how you identify yourself. And the question is, do you want to pick up the ideas that are being po imposed on you from outside? Or how about the ideas that you think are your ideas of what you want to be? Where did you get those? Maybe those were sort of subtle things that were built into the language, built into whatever. Um, so the Buddha is basically saying what you want to learn how to do is undo all of those. Um, now there are certain types of self, or certain ways of identifying yourself, that actually give you the tools that you can do this. Like we said earlier, the, the confidence, I can do this. This is, can be done by human beings, I'm a human being. That's a useful way of, there'll be some limitations on that, but it's a set of tools that can actually get you past the limitations. Again, we're thinking strategically here. Any questions on that passage? Yes. That term for limitation there, is that the, the alpha primitive term for the sense of unlimited used in defining the formless? Yeah, it's, it's for the Brahma Viharas, it's the same word. Appamana or appamanya would be the, the formless, the, 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 the immeasurable, uh, the, no, it's, it's the immeasurable Brahma Viharas. The immeasurable, sir. You're right, right. And it's the same and one. The, and the, uh, Space consciousness. Space consciousness. Okay, not that's formless. That's rupa and arupa. The, the English descriptions talk about unlimited, infinite, no boundary. Oh, that's infinite. Would, infinite is ananta. Ananta, which means not having an end. Here, the word is bhamana, which means word. there's a measure or a limit. Okay. Like in the apamanya, that would be okay, unlimited or immeasurable goodwill or immeasurable okay. compassion. There's no limit placed on it. Anything else? <sighs> okay. <laughs> Covered a lot of material. And we've got a lot more. We're only about reading number seven, and I think it was 20-something. 20 27. Okay. Um, we will break for lunch. We'll meet here again at 1.